Let's join together again in prayer. Well, Father, we come to you, and we comfort you in various places in our hearts, Lord. Some of us are, are very content, and maybe we shouldn't be. Some of us are confident in ourselves. Some of us are suffering. And, Lord, we need to know more of how to rely on you. Lord, but wherever we come from, we know that it is your word that speaks to our hearts. We are like newborn babies longing for the pure milk of your word. Uh, Whether or not we realize it, that's what we need. So, Lord, we pray that as we open your word this morning, you would sustain us uh, with your spirit, giving us insight into the thoughts of the living God. we, We know your word reveals your mind and your heart. It is your revelation to us. And Lord, we are your creatures dependent upon you in all ways. There is a a natural fittedness in terms of our hearts and consciences and what is contained in your scripture. So Lord, make that that fittedness apparent that we may see how we must depend on your word and rely on your word. And we pray that then you would use your word to shape and change us more and more into your image, that we might be Uh, changed from one degree of glory to another as we behold Christ and we behold him through his word. Lord, we pray that you would be doing that in our lives together. We we thank you that we're not the only church in our area that is faithfully preaching your word. We think, uh, for example, of the church, um, Burtonsville Baptist Church, and Pastor Justin, who is uh, even now preaching your word there. And we pray that you would uh, make hearts that are cold and hard, alive through your word, and you would grow your people together, you would call them together, that they might reflect your love and grace in Christ. Lord, we bring other prayer requests to you this morning. We pray for those who can't be with us. We think of Betty May and Rachel Schultz, and also Judy Evans and Bug and Anita, those who are part of our fellowship, who we know and love and care about, who are part of this body, yet can't be physically present here. So we pray that you would be sustaining them in your word, and we as a church would be caring for them and, uh, and helping them grow in your grace and kindness. Lord, we think of the situation in Ukraine, and we pray for peace and justice there. Lord, we pray that you would protect the gathering assemblies of your people, allow them to gather in your name faithfully, and we pray that there, in the midst of uncertainty, that your word and your, the truth of your gospel would be able to be seen as the only sure foundation, the only thing to build a life upon, and people would uh, depend upon uh, Christ. We pray you would use it for the advancement of the gospel. Lord, we also pray for a resolution with a plane that is missing, as people uh, are, are missing loved ones and there's uncertainty. Lord, we pray that you would uh, drive them to Christ and you would use that to further your gospel. We also pray for resolution and that it would be found. Lord, open our hearts as we open your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as already hinted at in the prayer request, in the prayer time, there, this is a tough week for many people. And there are many stories of suffering present here that I know about, and I'm sure there are many untold ones that I do not know about. Uh, A couple people in our gathering have lost loved ones. There's multiple people who are struggling with children who are wandering away from the faith. People are battling severe sickness. 
And what I want us to think about this morning is how does the Christian life, how does the Christian faith apply to those situations? I'll another situation uh, that is in the news lately. You may or may not have heard of it. Probably not, but I'll let you know, and you can be praying as well. But several, uh, about seven years ago in Turkey, the, the city we lived, the country we lived in for a few years, there were some Christians that were, um, were tortured and killed for their faith. They were uh, spreading the gospel, and some people didn't like that. So it was a gruesome scene, terrible thing. It was two locals and one Western missionary. Uh, and those who committed the crimes were arrested, literally with blood on their hands. But this week it was announced that those who are, were arrested are being released. Uh, not completely innocent yet, but they're getting back out uh, on the streets. And the wife of the murdered missionary has actually stayed in the country, raised their children there. They're there in that city. And I had, got an email saying that she said that we're going to have to get used to the idea of seeing these people in the mall and other places. Uh, just a, a very difficult situation. How does the Christian life, how does the Christian faith apply in that kind of situation? See, what I think is the case is that most Christians would say, yes, uh, in our sufferings, in our trials, as we walk through that, that shadow of the valley of death, yes, the Christian life applies there. But I'm afraid that for many of us, our application in those moments is too shallow. Uh, We say things like, well, God is in control. And, of course, that's true. That's very true. That's a truth to hold on to. Uh, We say things like, God works all things together for the good, for those who love and trust him. Another, that's that's from the Bible. It's true, and it's helpful, and it's good that we reflect on that. We say things like, God won't give you more than you can handle. Now, I'm not sure that one's true, because I think part of what God does is gives us more than we can handle so that we depend on him. Uh, But the point is, we often comfort ourselves and try to comfort other people with the Christian faith, uh, but we use these big abstract truths that are outside of us, and while there is definitely comfort there, Uh, Is there something else? Is there a way to apply the Christian life in a way that is much more personal and much more intimate? Is our experience of suffering as a Christian distinct from the way the world experiences suffering? Not simply in terms of the abstract truths that we believe in, but also in the way that our Redeemer comes into our lives and and shapes our very experience of that suffering. Well, I I think it is the latter. I think we have something different in terms of our present experience. And that's what our passage this morning addresses. So, if you will, look in your Bibles or on the notes uh, at uh, Philippians. We're going to focus in on verses 10 and 11 of chapter 3. We've been looking at this big section in chapter 3 that contains so much truth for uh, three weeks in a row. This is our third message on that larger section. We're going to zero in on verses 10 and 11. Remember, in the beginning section, Paul has talked about how he wants to know Christ. And he has talked about how he has all these things that he could put confidence in, but he renounces them all so that he can know Christ. And he knows Christ based on the righteousness of Christ that is given to him. But you see, all of that is not the end. That's not the goal. Here's where Paul is saying it all leads to. This is what it's all been tending to. And we see that in verses 10 and 11. Let me read that. Paul writes, That I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, 
that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Those are the verses we're going to focus in on this morning. But before I kind of start going into them, I need to just tell you something by way of encouragement in terms of how you should process this. It's something I've learned from actually years of teaching these kind of concepts. Um, it's, if you look at this passage, I think we see, we see two truths that we can't miss. If we just kind of look at the general you know, uh, way that it, it's talking about. We're not getting into the specifics of what it's saying. We're just looking at the kind of passage that it is. I think we see two things. One, it needs to be experiential if it's true at all. Okay, because Paul here is talking about knowing Christ, right? And the, the Hebrew concept of, the, of know, the, the, the biblical concept of know, means much more than you would just know about. He's, he's not just saying he wants to know about Christ's death and resurrection. Everybody at that time knew about Christ's death and resurrection. That, that's not questioned. He's not just saying he wants to know about Christ in his death and resurrection. He wants to know Christ in his death and and resurrection, which is, by definition, experiential. He wants to know him in this. It's something that he would experience. And therefore, as we look at this passage, you've got to keep in mind that this is speaking to our present experience. So what that means is you can't go home and and say to somebody who who didn't make it to church, you can't say, well, you know what? The, The passage we looked at today wasn't very applicable to life. I mean, it may be that I didn't communicate it well, maybe that you didn't listen to well, but by definition, the things that Paul is talking about here are applicable to life. Otherwise, we'd have to say Paul is off in his understanding, and I don't think we want to do that. We can't do that if we have a high view of what Scripture says. So, number one, it is by definition experiential, and we've got to, as we process it, realize that and be constantly asking ourselves, what is the reality of which this speaks? Because it talks about things like sharing in his sufferings, the power of his resurrection. And these are, you know, good phrases that you, you would anticipate hearing in church, right? They're, they're churchy kind of phrases, you know? We can say, yeah, power of his resurrection. But we've got to ask ourselves, what does that mean? And particularly, what does that mean in terms of our experience of it? Because that's the, uh, the genre that Paul is in. And the second thing that, just in looking at what he's talking about here, we've got to realize that it's really, really important. He's talking about knowing Christ. Knowing God is really the point of the Bible. And we know God through Christ. And if you look at Christ, uh, his death and resurrection is like the central thing about who he is and what he's come to do. So we're, we're at the very core, the very center of the Christian life. That means it's really, really important. And we're at a place, too, where there is great difference in terms of the believer's experience and the unbeliever's experience. There's, there's radical discontinuity between my life outside of Christ and my life in Christ in terms of the truth that's being talked about in this passage. That means it's really easy to kind of say, oh yeah, that's a Christian phrase, power of his resurrection. I just talk like that, but yet not exactly realize what does that mean in terms of my experience. So, so, two encouragements. Be convinced that this speaks about real life. The sermon is practical. And maybe you walk away from the sermon thinking to yourself, I have no idea how that actually relates to my life. But at least if you believe that it does relate to your life, that's going to set you on a good and helpful trajectory. But the second thing is, don't give up until you've really experienced this. 
I mean, it, it speaks to real life, and it is important. So it's important, therefore, that you hold on to these truths, and you try and try and try to live it out. And that's going to mean coming to God in prayer. That's going to mean meditating on these passages. Uh, that's why I give you application questions, so you can go back and review the message. I don't think it's realistic that in the next, you know, hour and a half, no, it's not really going to take that long, in, in the next uh, a half hour in terms of the, the sermon, that you're going to really understand these truths in such a way that you'll be able to live them out. That's, that's not realistic. It's going to mean going back there, going back there, Again and again. And just by way of testimony, um, I've been thinking about uh, Paul's understanding here for uh, a long time, probably about the last eight years or so. I've been writing about it for papers in school. I've been studying it. I've been preaching it. I've been trying to counsel it. And I, where I feel like I am is just kind of taking baby steps, you know, where my daughter was several months ago when she would take a step or two and then fall and then. And then get up and fall. That's kind of where I am, where sometimes it feels like, yes, I, I kind of sort of experienced this, but yet I know that there's so much more in here that we need to go. So, so realistically, I don't think you're going to be able to say, oh, yeah, I totally get what uh, we looked at in the passage today, and, and I'll be fine living it out for the rest of my life. No, it's, it's going to mean more than ever. I mean, that's true for any message, really. But this one in particular, going back and reviewing it again and again. Okay, so now how are we going to look at this passage, now that we've given you that sort of disclaimer in the beginning? Well, if you look on your outline, we're going to see three things about Paul's experience. You see, we're going to try to look, this is a a present experience, this is real for Paul, we're going to look at his experience from three different vantage points, from the end, from the middle, and from the starting point. And we're going to look at them in that order, which might sound odd to you, because, you know, in most things in life, you start at the beginning and then work your way through. However, I want to argue that there's something unique about our Christian experience that can only be understood if you look at it from the perspective of the end first. That's unique to our Christian experience. So, the end first. Look at verses 10 and 11, the end of verse, the second half of verse 10. Paul writes, Becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible... I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. We'll unpack that idea here. Let's start with the easiest concept. Again, we're we're understanding that this fits with our experience. The, The easiest way to sort of relate this to our experience is the phrase resurrection from the dead. What does Paul mean there? Well, I think it's clear that he means being raised from the dead. His his individual self being raised from the dead in a glorified body, never to die again. That's what Paul's talking about there when he says the resurrection from the dead. He means having a body like Jesus after Jesus rose from the dead. See, as Christians, we believe that in heaven, uh, we are not going to be just spirits that, that are not corporal. And we also don't believe that our body will be raised in the same state it was when we died. That would not make heaven beautiful. No, we believe that we are raised from the dead in a glorified body, a new body that is our body made new. It's the body that God designed for us to have, but no one was able to have because of sin. But Christ was able to have it, and we have it in him. Now, there's lots of advantages to our new body. It will not age. It will not get sick. It will not need a chiropractor. It will not need chemotherapy. But the biggest advantage of the new body 
is that it won't sin. And, and because it won't sin, in that new body, we will know Jesus in a way that we never could have known him otherwise. See, that's, that's the real advantage of the new body. And that's why it's Paul's hope. Remember Paul's whole point here. He wants to know Jesus. That's what Paul's so excited about. That's what he said in verse 8. That's what he said in verse 9. He, in the verse 10, he wants to know Jesus. That's why he looks all the way ahead to that resurrection body. Because in that resurrection body, he will know Jesus most fully. And you've got to understand, he has that resurrection body, will have that resurrection body. And not because it's, it's just something he has in and of himself. It's because he's united to Christ. And as Christ is raised from the dead, so also Paul knows that he will be raised from the dead because he's united to Christ. Now, we understand that. That explains what Paul says just before that at the end of verse 10. Being conformed to the likeness of his death. Think about it, folks. How did Jesus get the resurrection body? Was he just walking along one day and boom, you know, it changes? No. What, happened to ha- what had to happen first? He had to die, right? First he was laid in the grave. First the cross and then the crown. First suffering and then glory. That's the pattern of Jesus' life experience. And Paul understands that's the pattern of his life experience too. Christ paved the path that Paul will also go. And therefore Paul believes that before he is raised to life, new life with Christ, has that resurrection body, he must first be conformed to the the likeness of Christ's death. You see, death for the Christian is not the ceasing of life. It's rather the final taking away of our sinful nature. See, in the cross, what happened there, lots of things happened on the cross. One of it was that Christ took on our sinful uh, nature. Not in a sense that he actually sinned, but yet there was a sinful nature, that he, uh, a, a corruptible nature, I should say, that he took on himself. He, he wasn't sinful in any sense, but he, he took on our corruptible nature and he died and therefore killed our old self. And then in him, our old self dies as well. But that will not be fully experienced until we die in death. Therefore, Paul, in order to look ahead to the resurrection, looks ahead to the resurrection by way of his own cross that he will bear, his own suffering, his own death. Now, friends, that tells us something very important about the nature of the Christian life. It tells us that our ultimate hope is not in this life. Remember Paul's goal. It is to know Christ. And he will never fully know Christ so long as he is in this uh, flesh. It is only achieved after death in the resurrection. Therefore, Paul looks to that time as the ultimate hope of the Christian. Paul says at one point that if in this life only he has hoped in Christ, he is of most men to be pitied. In other words, he's wasted his life. He's saying it's not worth being a Christian just for what he experiences here on earth, which is an amazing statement if you think about it. Even because being a Christian here on earth is so good. But Paul is saying, no, the real hope is in heaven. It is in that resurrected body knowing Christ. So he looks there. So, friends, that means that your best life is not now. Your best life is the resurrection life that will happen in the life to come. And, friends, that's why for Paul, to die is gain. We looked at that back in chapter 1. He says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Death is gain because it is through death that he is raised to new life. And through that new life, he knows God. 
better. You know, in pastoral ministry, I see a lot of people face death. And I see that they have two very different reactions to it. Some people panic. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And sometimes they even try to get me to intercede for them. Pastor, pastor, do something so I don't die. I can't do anything, really. Other people have peace. Yes, they know they're going to miss their family, but they're filled with joy because they want to know Christ. Friends, it's the latter that, that really gets it. I heard a story. I don't really remember where I heard this story, but I heard a story of a young woman who was dying. She was a young mother and leaving a lot behind. And she had asked people to pray for her. And it was a, a prolonged sickness, so she knew she had lots of time to sort of reflect on it. And her prayer was, God, make it so that when it's time for me to go, I want to know you so much that it doesn't feel like loss. And I remember this person telling me the story, said that she talked to this woman as, as she approached death and said, well, I'll pray for you. And the woman said, well, I appreciate your prayers, but, but pray for my family because God has answered my prayer request. I want to know him. It doesn't feel like loss. I'm ready to go and we'll be, it'll be joy to see him. She understood that death is gain because it is through that death that she'll know Christ more fully. Friends, do you understand that? Do you see that to die is gain? You must understand something about the Christian life. None of the Christian, no, no aspect of the Christian life can ever really work unless dying is gain. There's a lot we do in the Christian life where we're not immediately thinking about death. I mean, we pray, we have fellowship, we study the Bible, we do missions. But see, those are never ends in themselves. Those are always a means to knowing God better. And if death isn't gain, that means that at some point, and somewhere in our lives, we don't really want to know him. And therefore, everything else in the Christian life isn't going to really quite work. It'll always feel a little bit off. I think it's maybe sort of what Paul is getting at when he talks about in in, uh, 2 Timothy, that some people have a form of godliness but lack power. You know, we can... We can not see death as gain, but come to church and conform to, you know, church-like things. Yet all the while, it's not really going to make sense to us. We will lack the power of it. Because in the end, we're not really using these things to know Christ. Friends, I'd encourage you. If death is not gain, if that doesn't uh, see, you don't see that as gain, just pray about it. Talk to God about it. Meditate on his word. Talk to a good friend who can help you process that because that's part of the, the very essence of what the Christian life is. Now, I'm not advocating that we, we try to die or seek death. No, this isn't a, a suicidal talk at all. But I am advocating that we don't fear it. And there is something naturally to be afraid of it. I mean, living beings want to live, right? That's what they all do. But through the eyes of faith, we see Christ for whom death was not the end, but the means to greater life. And we believe that if we are found in him, we will experience what he experienced. And therefore, death for us will also be the means of life. Now, friends, I hope you see that this is supposed to be real and experiential. That hope of the future life is supposed to be something that you carry with you throughout all of life. It penetrates into all of life if we have a longing for that day when we will know him. So, friends, that's the end. Now, what about the middle? Well, look at verse 10, the beginning of verse 10. Paul says, I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. 
And this isn't the end. This is what Paul is experiencing here and now. This is his present experience. And what you have to see here is this is real for Paul. Knowing Christ in his death and resurrection is, uh, is his present experience. It's, it's something that he knows and something that he lives out. And you see, because Paul is found in Christ, and for believers, we are found in Christ, we don't have to wait until that day that we are raised from the dead to experience the power of his resurrection. No, because we are united with him, we can experience that now. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Now, we're going to look at these two things, the the fellowship of his suffering and the power of his resurrection, or the the sharing of his suffering, depending on the translation that you have. Let me just point out one grammatical point about how we understand this passage. The grammar that Paul uses here uh, lets us know that fellowship of his sufferings, or sharing in his sufferings, and uh, the power of the resurrection are not two different experiences. They're not two different things, but he's talking about the same thing. So that means that you can't say, well, well, Thursday was a bad day. I got stuck in traffic. I had a, had a headache. I got a fight with my spouse, and my dog bit me. So that was a day that I was experiencing the fellowship of his sufferings. But, but Friday was a great day because I found a parking place at work. The boss liked my idea. I, I shared the gospel with a coworker. Well, that must be a power of his resurrection day. That, that's not, that's not what Paul is getting at here. See, they're both part of the same thing. It's in the fellowship of his sufferings that we experience the power of his resurrection. And it is the power of his resurrection that is most clearly seen in those moments where we share with him in his sufferings. One author put it this way. He said, the resurrection is the means by which we endure the suffering. And the suffering points to the reality of the resurrection. And we can't separate them. We can't want one without the other. Because we're found in Christ, and Christ has both. Now there's a passage that I think most gloriously illustrates that. That is 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You can turn there if you want. We'll look at verses 7 through, I think, 12. Um, But in this passage, I've got to give you a little bit of a preliminary thing. Paul talks about... The treasures in jars of clay. We have this treasure in jars of clay, is what he says. And you have to know that the treasure there is the glory of God in the face of Christ. And that glory, I think, is, if you look at it in its context, a reference, a clear reference to the resurrection. So when he talks about the treasure, he's talking about the reality of the resurrection, the power of his resurrection. And the treasure is in jars of clay. And what you have to know about jars of clay is they were, that's kind of like the the old Greek version of... um, uh, throwaway Tupperware. It, it, it's not something that's going to last forever. It's dispensable. It's weak. It, it, it's, you know, destroyed in the microwave, so to speak. It, it's not lasting, and it's going to get holes in it. And that's talking about us and our suffering, us and our weakness. Okay? So we're going to go through 2 Corinthians 4, starting at verse 7, and I, what I want to point out to you is the way in which the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings are intertwined. Here's what Paul says. But we have this treasure. What's the treasure? Yes, the power of his resurrection in jars of clay. What's that? Yeah, the suffering bodies. To show that the surpassing power of God, the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying around in the body the death of Jesus, 
What's that? Suffering, right? The fellowship of us. We're carrying around in the body the, the death of Jesus. That means we're sharing in his suffering. We'll talk more about what that means explicitly later. So that the life of Jesus, what's that? His resurrection, right? May be manifested in our bodies. And see what Paul is saying there. He's saying that we are exposed to weakness and suffering. But it's for a purpose. It is so that the resurrection life will be revealed in our bodies. Suffering serves the purpose of manifesting the resurrection. If we were strong and if we didn't suffer, we would have no need to rely upon the power of the resurrection. Paul continues. He says, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. What's that a reference to? Suffering, right? Being given over to death for Jesus' sake is is sharing in his sufferings so that the life of Jesus, resurrection, might be manifested in our mortal flesh. Mortal is a reference to its, our, our, our corruptibility, our, our suffering. The life, the resurrection life of Christ is manifested in our weak, suffering bodies. You see, fellowship with his suffering and the power of his resurrection go together. They occur together. So, for instance, Paul says that we are persecuted. Now, that's sharing with Christ in his suffering, because Christ didn't he say, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. We are persecuted. But then after Christ was persecuted, he rose, and we will too. And therefore, if we have that hope, as we are persecuted, we are not forsaken, because he has us. And that suffering is not outside of God's will. Paul says here that we're struck down. Enemies are real, and they inflict pain, and life can hurt. Paul's not a stoic that just pretends in which that everything is always happy and just pretends that the pain is an illusion. No, he feels that pain. But the incorruptible life of Jesus is already in us, so therefore we are not destroyed. We're perplexed. Loved ones die, and we wonder why. Many questions we don't have answers to. But, as C.S. Lewis put it so well, one day, everything that is sad will be untrue. Everything that is sad will be untrue. That's the day of the resurrection. Therefore, when we're perplexed, we're not driven to despair because we know that one day it will be gloriously revealed. In fact, never do we feel closer to Jesus than when we are suffering. And as we come to experience his suffering, we come also to experience the power of his resurrection. Now, let's think briefly about the precise language that Paul talks about, the the sharing of his suffering. That's the Greek word koinonia, which means fellowship, which means sharing. It means a common bond. We usually think of that in terms of, uh, you know, potluck dinners, fellowship suppers, right? This is a different kind of fellowship, but yet one that I think is actually much more to the point of what Paul means in this work. For those, this is the point, for those uh, in Christ, our suffering is part of the same organic whole as Christ's suffering. Uh, people like to say there was a, the thief on the cross that hurled insets, uh, insults at Christ as he died. That person suffered next to Christ. But it is the believer who trusts in Christ through his or her suffering that actually suffers with Christ. And, and when did Paul see this? If you think of Paul's life, I think we, 
we see where this would have been drilled into Paul's head. Remember when Paul first encountered Christ? He was on the road to Damascus seeking to put Christians in jail or to death. And then Christ appeared to them. And remember what he said? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul is not persecuting you. you know, who are you that I'm who are you, Lord, that I'm persecuting you? And he said, I am Jesus. See, Paul knew that he hadn't laid a finger on Jesus, but he had laid many, laid many fingers on the believers. And that led Paul to see that there is an organic connection between the suffering of Jesus and the suffering of those who are in Jesus. To persecute the believers is to persecute Christ because their suffering is considered together. And then when the shoe is on the other foot, when Paul actually suffers, when he is persecuted, it's this truth that he rests in. He understands the same thing. He understands that his suffering is actually part of this suffering of Christ. It is considered together with Christ. And he draws all kinds of comfort from that. A quick uh, disclaimer here. I don't mean that Paul's suffering does the same thing that Christ's suffering does. No, there's a uniqueness to Christ's suffering. And then Christ, as the perfectly innocent, spotless lamb, atoned for sin. He died to cover our sins. Paul's suffering, your suffering, my suffering, it doesn't do that. However, there is also a sense in which when we are in Christ, our whole life is in Christ. And therefore, we experience what he did. And our suffering has a connection with Christ's suffering. So that answers another question. Does that mean that the suffering here, does that mean that you have to experience it maybe on the mission field where you're actually suffering for the sake of Christ in a very clear and direct way? Or is he talking about any suffering that we experience? Well, I think he's talking really about any suffering that we experience because our whole life, if we're a Christian, is in Christ. And therefore, all that we suffer will be suffering in Christ. So, if you're in physical pain, you have headaches or backaches. I know backaches, I've had them so intensely, it's like I can't think of anything else. Or if you have a terminal illness, friends, look to Jesus who suffered too. And friends, don't let the pain isolate you. That's what pain so often does. It drives us inward, and we see only ourselves in our pain. But you need to let it drive you outward to see Christ as you have a suffering Savior, one who suffered for your sakes. That pain is in somehow union with him. I remember thinking of that uh, in the dentist chair one time when I was first learning about these ideas. And and the Novocaine wasn't working as it should. And it really hurt. And I remember thinking... I have a Savior who suffered far more than just this. And my suffering isn't somehow with him. And that made all the difference in the world. Maybe you're in emotional pain. Maybe you lost a loved one or someone you see someone destroying his or her life, and that hurts. Well, friends, remember that Jesus experienced that too. Jesus wept when his friend Lazarus died. People saw, Jesus saw those who he loved reject him. He knows in in a very interesting way a mother's anguish as she sees her children doing bad things that will hurt themselves and others. So in those moments, draw near to Christ and understand that he, he knows that. He's experienced that. And somehow your suffering and his suffering are part of the same whole. And friends, also... Be willing to suffer for his sake. Yes, all suffering is somehow in Christ, but yet it should also motivate us to be willing to put ourselves out there that we would suffer for his sake. 
And if you know that in, you will have comfort in your sufferings in him, why not take risks for the gospel? Why not be willing to be rejected? Jesus says that if anybody wants to follow him, he must pick up his cross and follow him. Friends, what, what does that mean for you as you follow Jesus and expose yourself to suffering for his sake? Well, friends, be willing to do that because you know of the intense comfort and fellowship you have with him in that suffering. I think the world has two very different perspectives, two very different options for suffering. They can say that suffering can be good, right? Uh, Nietzsche said, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And athletes suffer so that they get stronger. And, and sometimes suffering can make us be more powerful and have more glory. Suffering is that which builds us up. Or suffering isolates us. It's that suffering that does kill us, that makes us have utter despair. But you see, the Christian suffering is completely different than both of those options. It reveals our weakness. But yet in that weakness, we see that we are not alone, but we are united to Christ. And then we have more of his strength. We see more of his glory. Our lives display his glory. So friends, what I hope you see in this is that fellowship in his sufferings and the power of his resurrection isn't just nice churchy language that we can throw around that sounds good. It's actually meant to be part of our real experience. It's actually meant to be, be, uh, shape our lives. Now, finally, and very briefly, what's the starting point? Uh, this is, I hope you see a glorious truth. I hope you're excited about it as well. But I don't think I'd serve you well if I just pointed out the glorious truth and didn't give you any clue, especially if you're outside the faith, how you get in and experience this. So I'm speaking to, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, the question is, how do you begin this? How do you come to see your suffering in union with Christ and his suffering? And if you're a Christian, what's the the fuel that this continues to grow by? Let me just say, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, uh, let me point out the obvious to you. You will suffer. It will happen. And suffering in Christ is a wonderful thing. And suffering outside of Christ is a scary thing. Maybe you've had conversations with, other, with, with Christians and you're, you're talking about things like the resurrection and you're, you're, you're talking about the existence of God. Well, let me encourage you. Talk to a Christian friend about what it means to suffer as a Christian. And I think you'll get much at the, the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. But here's the point. Here's the starting point. Here's how we experience this. The answer is by faith. By faith. Look at verse 9 of of, of Philippians 3. How did Paul receive the righteousness of Christ? The answer is through faith. And it's through faith because we are found in him by faith. We are united to Christ by faith. That's what the Bible teaches. And it's interesting if you you look at it, especially in the, the original language, Paul at times strains what the Greek grammar can do by saying things like, we believe into Christ. What do you mean believe into Christ? Never that I'm aware of in Greek literature is there that expression, you believe into something. That's because belief doesn't usually get you anywhere. I mean, the, the Greek understanding here is that faith or belief is not something that is strong. It is actually something that is weak. The philosophers of that time talked about hope and love as a virtue, as as well as justice and nobility and beauty. But they didn't talk about the 
the glory of faith or the glory of belief. That wasn't considered something strong. It was considered actually a rather weak bond. Why then does God use faith as the means of uniting us to Christ? Well, the answer, I hope you can see, is that God reveals his strength in our weakness. He uses what is a very weak thing to just believe in something. And he uses that to bring us into Christ in the strongest, most powerful bond that we can imagine. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ. God uses our weakness, even our weak faith. The fact that faith is not something inherently strong. And he uses that to bring us into Christ that we may experience his glory. So friends, hear the call of the gospel. Stop relying on your own performance. Stop believing in your own strength. And place your faith completely in Christ. And be found in him. And there you will experience the fellowship of his suffering and the power of his resurrection. And you will know him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glorious truth we see in your word. And we pray that you would use it to transform our experience. Help us to believe that it speaks to something real in our lives. And help us to put forth the effort, give it the attention that deserves, that we may come to understand what you mean by this reality. We pray you would transform us into the likeness of Christ's death, and his resurrection. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.